especially a huge amount of really the pruning of our nervous system happens early where the the connections that our brain makes in that first especially two years will never have that pace again um, so making sure that our brain has the, the things that are on that list of things that are uh, the terms I would usually say are brain essential nutrients making sure that our diet has provided enough of those is critical this is episode 124 of the Neuro Experience podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. My listeners, if you're a regular, I hope you're loving the content and starting to build out your own specific brain health program based on the evidence that we provide in all of our episodes. If you are new, welcome. I'm delighted to have you here. Since COVID, I've been increasingly interested in plant medicine which is a very non-traditional route, I know. But if you've been following along carefully, you would know that I speak a lot about nootropics and their role in brain health and brain optimization. So since really digging deep into the science of nootropics, I found myself investigating companies who provide the best nootropics and supplements on the market. And that brings me to today's guest. And that is Dr. Greg Kelly. He's the lead product formulator at NeuroCollective, and he's also the author of the book, Shapeshift. So for those of you who don't know, Neurohacker Collective is a company with a team of scientists, medical practitioners, biohackers, and health conscious creators who develop world-class products to help optimize the quality of your life, beginning with your mind. This episode goes deep into the science of nootropics, from what they are to why some of us may need them and why some of us may not. You're going to learn the ins and outs of plant medicine and how to combat mental challenges that almost all of us have faced or are currently facing today. Challenges such as mental fatigue, lack of focus, low attention span, and general energy inefficiency. You're going to hear me refer to Qualia Mind, which is Neurohacker's most famous product. It's one of the most advanced and comprehensive mental performance products available, which was purely designed and developed to increase cognition while supporting long-term brain health. I'm going to link all the products in the show notes over on the website and at the bottom of this episode. I hope you enjoy the episode. And also, if you like something specific in here, please head over, leave a star rating and review and tag your Instagram handle for your chance to win a free bottle of Qualia Mind. Our team will go through and carefully pick out a review and get in touch with you. All right, guys, let's get into the episode. Neuroscience, neurology and beyond. Learn everything you need to know from the best physicians and experts in the world. The NeuroExperience podcast is a platform to help you understand what the brain is and how it shapes every part of our lives. Every episode comes to you from highly credible sources. I'm Louisa Nicola, medical neuroscientist from Australia living in New York City. Come and take a neuroexperience with me. We've got Greg here, and Greg, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, like I was telling the audience, and like the audience knows, I've built a, a very strong relationship with Neurohacker. I believe in the products, and you're going to take us through absolutely everything. So, welcome to the Neuro Experience. Oh, thanks for having me on as your guest. No, thank you. Why don't we start with, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about your role at Neurohacker, how you got there, and what you're doing now? Sure. So, um, my title is, um, I think it's Director of Product Development. It just changed. But basically, I'm the one that uh, is involved in formulating the products. So reading all the research articles on ingredients, figuring out pathways and processes that we're targeting through the different substances that we're going to you know, put together in recipes and experiment with, and then ultimately educating the users. So I write uh, a lot of the content that ultimately is on our blog and that gets distilled in the marketing messages. So that's kind of my, you know, my job there. I end up being somewhat the face of the company for, you know, being a guest on podcasts as well. Um, and then I, I've, I've jumped around a lot in my career. So I started off with an engineering degree and as an officer in the U.S. Navy back in the 80s. And after that, I did a whole bunch of random things over the next couple of years while I was um, taking classes at the University of Hawaii. 
but ended up doing a master's degree in what would uh, largely, I think the best way to describe it would be medical anthropology or nutritional anthropology, how different cultures around the world used food and then things in their environment to stay and get healthy. And during that, I was doing meditation, yoga, um, had my massage license and encountered nature paths in Hawaii and just thought their life was super cool. So shifted gears, became a naturopathic doctor and, um, you know, have off and on then both clinically in the nineties, early two thousands, worked with patients doing a lot of supplementation, but, um, have worked a lot in the supplement industry since then. And that mm. kind of eventually led me to neurohacker because I just thought they were doing super cool things. Yeah, it's look. I'm very into ancestral living, where um, you know plant plant medicine, and I think it plays a massive role. Coming from more a clinical and medical background, you know, we kind of wean away from that. And I never say that it's the the cure. I always think of plant medicine in terms of pre- prevention. So um, that's how I actually got into nootropics. And when you study neurology and you're studying neuroscience, there is now growing evidence to suggest that certain nootropics, even my favorite, which is at the moment, uh, glutathione, things that can really enhance, um, enhance the production of your brain and really optimize your brain. And on several of the podcasts, I've actually gone through and I've told the audience how important it is to not just pick up any nootropic, by the way, just, you know, really understanding from the ground level, What's going on in your body? Have you done the blood test? Have you done any type of test to suggest that maybe, and even looking at lifestyle factors, to suggest that maybe you might need um, a, a nootropic to enhance a certain aspect of your brain? So why don't, we, why don't we start with nootropics? Why don't you tell us what they are? And uh, I mean, I would love to, if you can, go into a bit of the history of it because you said you, know, you were doing some anthropology work and um, then we can go from there. But in, in terms of like the term nootropics, that's pretty recent. Um, I, I want to say it was a Romanian researcher that coined the term, but it was a, a European. And really it came from him noticing that this category of um, pharmaceutical compounds tended to make people's brain work better. So nootropics in the simplest sense would be smart pills. They're things that when we take improve some aspect of our cognitive functioning and um, different nootropics essentially specialize in different what I would think of as domains or or subdomain skills within those domains. So so we would have this modern idea of um, what are called racetams were the compounds that um, prompted this researcher to come up with the word nootropics to categorize their, their impact. But then you also have in a lot of traditional medicines something that would have been akin to how we think of the modern idea of nootropics. And Ayurveda, which would be the traditional medical system of India and South Asia, they had um, a category of of things they called rasayanas, which the best way to think of rasayanas would be things that are rejuvenators, um, that they would think, all right, these are things you should take that will make... um, essentially you perform at a younger, healthier level. And within that, they had a subcategory called, and I'm going to you know, definitely mispronounce this, but something like media rasayanas. And so those are mental rejuvenators. And some of the, the herbs that are quite routinely now used as nootropics that would come out of that tradition would have been those mental rejuvenator herbs. So bacopa would be a classic example. Mm. So what, what you see is in these different traditional systems, there was typically a category of plant medicine that they thought of as being, you know, cognitive enhancers. Okay. So we've got the history of it now. It's interesting because it is, like you said, it's a fairly new term that we're all learning about. Now, one thing that I stress to everybody is it's not a one-stop shop. Don't just think that you can go and get a pill and um, think that it's magically going to enhance um, and optimize your brain. When we're looking at things like, um, you know, right right now in my hand, I'm looking at qualia and we're going to go into that. But 
what is it about this whole stacking? We, we hear about stacking. Is this about what's the different types of nootropics that we can stack together or should we, be, should we be stacking our nootropics or should we just be looking at one condition such as focus, you know, lack of focus, lack of attention, and then just looking at putting together certain types of nootropics to help enhance that area? So great questions. Before jumping into that, there's a, a term, in the, especially in the biohacking and nootropic space that... Um, is routinely battered around and it's your mileage may vary. So I think it's Mm. YMMV that you'll see. And essentially what that means is that your experience in me speaking directly to you of a a nootropic compound or a stack might be vastly different than mine. And so one of the key terms that, um, or one of the key concepts with nootropics is that, you know, just because something works for someone else does not mean it's going to be your experience. And so ultimately what happened with building stacks is if you take the racetans, which are the more like in the prescription, like here in the U.S., they're one of those weird things. They're not um, approved federal or approved drugs, but they're not dietary supplements. So they sit in this like weird nebulous in between. But um, racetams can really deplete, definitely some of them, um, acetylcholine. So then you started to have with people using racetams experimenting with, well, I'll add some choline on to kind of offset that. Um, And so over time, individuals built these more elaborate stacks and then tried to fine tune things that would work for them. So with Qualia, um, Qualia Mind being our, like our, um, you know, like really our, core nootropic, we tried to build a stack and test out a stack that would work for a lot of people. That being said, like our experience is that it doesn't work for everyone because again, that your mileage may vary. So, um, so when I tend to think of building stacks, um, one of the things I, I use as my mental model is I take the different cognitive domains that you'd be familiar with. So the things like attention, Uh, memory, language, social cognition, executive functions, and visual perceptual are usually the six, you know, main domains, like if you looked in the DSM-5. So instead of those being like separate things, I think of them as more of a hierarchy, almost as a pyramid. So do you want to take a moment for me to go into that or stop and ask a question about something I just said. Well, no, I would definitely love you to um, go into the pyramid so we can understand where we sit on that pyramid um, as individuals to see, you know, should we be taking it or should we not be taking it? Sure. So the the way I think of that pyramid is the, the, the base. So, you know, we can't get anywhere if we don't build this is basically being vigilant would be the term, but alert. And so, Caffeine would be, you know, it's the reason it's the most widely used nootropic substance on the planet, whether it's in coffee, tea, or, you know, in energy drinks, just as pure caffeine. That's by far the the compound that's the best at producing that vigilant level. And once that's satisfied, we can kind of get to the next level up, which is attention. So that's your reaction speed, focus, things like that. Um, We can access that readily. So caffeine tends to do a good job in that area as well. Well, what you find with most substances is they're not more is better. So doubling the amount of caffeine doesn't mean you'll get twice as good reactions. And quite often you see what I think of as an adaptational response. So beyond some range, it's a net negative. You know, so one of my first experiences having a lot of caffeine was standing watch all night when I was in the Navy and then having to write an exam at eight in the morning. So not all night, but I think it was from four to seven thirty. So I drank, a, I think an entire pot of coffee during that watch. And my hand was literally shaking when I went to write my exam. So mm. like I had overdone it, the, yeah. the nootropic benefit of caffeine, I had sailed way, way through. And so like one of the core concepts and one of the reasons that you stack things together is to amplify the benefits or extend them into other areas that the base compound, in this case, caffeine on its own, wouldn't be good at. So beyond alertness, reaction speed, and some degree of attention, caffeine doesn't really get you into what I would think of as social cognition areas, or, you know, it's not necessarily a great long-term memory compound. 
Mm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Most supplements can't cross the blood-brain barrier. So if the nutrient doesn't already exist in the brain, um, like uh, omega-3s, you can like you can be sure that it's like, is that the biggest misconception that we have with nootropics right now? Because there are some out there that, you know, people don't really know too much about the mechanisms and and how molecules can actually pass the blood brain barrier. And that's my whole take on getting people to buy into the science of a company who actually shows you what's in their products. They're very ethical. You know where they're being manufactured. They give you the, the science behind their products that can actually tell you, this is why you should be taking this. This actually passes a blood-brain barrier. Whereas there are some there are some substances out there and there's some companies who are actually selling you nootropics that don't actually have a proven beneficial effect on the brain, meaning that it can't even cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, what's your take on that? So I think, um, like when I think of the blood-brain barrier, I think of it as you know basically the bouncer at an iClub, you know, and he's only going to let in VIPs. So there's you know a certain list of compounds that we know can cross that. Um, they're just going to be let in. Um, other things, it's somewhat um, on an as-needed basis. So GABA would be an example. If the brain's already got um, a lot of GABA, it's a willingness to let in a bunch more is low. And if, you know, if it needs it, it will let in more. Um, compounds like choline, um, alpha-GPC, or citicoline, those forms of it, those um, have been very well researched for yeah. their ability to get into the brain. Um, but there's an, like, sometimes things aren't studied. So a lot of like the plant medicine wouldn't have necessarily been studied to see which compounds do and don't get into the blood-brain barrier. So what Instead, what I tend to look for is, for is what would be the, the functional evidence that this is positively affecting the brain. So th- those are usually then some, some sampling of cognitive testing that would have been done to show that, yes, this, you know, taking this extract of American ginseng boosted working memory, which is an executive function. So, so- whether it did it be by getting into the blood-brain barrier or did it by doing something, you know, in the gut, and having a reflex there or systemically that would be an unknown, mm. but like one of my main things, having worked with patients, I more care about, can I get them an experience of better working memory and being calm while having that than caring so much about, well, did it get into the blood brain barrier? Okay. And you find that when you, when we talk about nootropics and you're prescribing them to your patients, do you have other mechanisms as well that you include? Like, have you got them on a, let's say, for example, I know for me, whenever I, I, I stack nootropics, depending on what day of the week it is, every, every single day for me is different. Like Sundays are usually my rest days, so I'm not really getting too much into, I'm not really taking qualia as much qualia mind. Uh, I'm taking it more on my days. Like today, I've got, you know, we're recording this podcast. I've got another two lined up and I I put, you know, a lot of thinking and effort. And I'm a, I've got a, uh, my day goes until 12 today. So I tend to take qualia mind around 4 p.m., 3 p.m., 4 p.m. when I'm getting that slump. But I find as though if you can combine nootropics with other mindful techniques, such as uh, breathing, um or meditation, I find like it works much better, whether that is a placebo effect, I'm not sure. But I know that I don't just rely on putting these nootropics in my mouth and swallowing them and just believing that, okay, great. I really, I really do believe that you have to have another method of breathing or um, of something else that's going to calm the mind as well as the nootropics. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I think um, in general, good things happen when we pay attention to the important or foundational lifestyle and health behaviors, you know, so um, some kind kind of, you know, I think whether you call it meditation, um, but some type of mindful practice can be really great for the brain and you know, obviously getting enough sleep, making sure we're getting good nutrition. So nootropics are what I would think of as, you know, a, uh, part of the overall picture but if someone's relying on those to mitigate all the you know all of the things that they're doing that aren't you know maybe optimizing their health they'll typically still get benefits but nowhere near what they would get if they cleaned up everything else or you know at least some of the other things as well 
Um, do you mind if we go into a few new tropics that um, that I that do pass the blood brain barrier and that I believe are highly essential for brain development? Um, and just pick your brain on a few things. And sure. so. One thing that I love, um, especially for cognitive development, especially early on, like for kids, for even um, neonates, for even adults, is DHA, EPA. Um, can you go into what these both are and how they're beneficial from, uh, yeah, from a neurological perspective? Sure. So um, DHA and EPA are essential fatty acids. So they're in that, that omega-3 family for um, your listeners that would be familiar with that there you know the best food sources tend to be things like um, like wild caught fish uh, pasture raised eggs um, for DHA and EPA um, there are certain algae that are high in those for so for um, people that are vegetarian or vegan that's a, an option um, and then the DHA especially would be one of the people that's on that guest list that mm. the bouncer lets into the brain. Um, I think EPA is a, a little bit more control, but that can still get in as well. And our brain has a, a huge percentage of our brain is essentially lipids. Um, 60% so, around yeah, approximately, yeah. And a lot of... Um, like these essential fats dictate the health of the membranes around our neurons and throughout our body, the cells of our body, including immune cells. And so it, it seems like when we have enough of those in the diet, our cells all tend to work better because their membranes where, which is where the receptors are embedded are more essentially healthier. And so then the receptors work better. And ultimately it's the receptors on cells and neurons that are you know, give those cells an ability to essentially act intelligent, intelligently networked with all the other cells. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, and I think especially a huge amount of really the pruning of our nervous system happens early where mm-hmm. the, the connections that our brain makes in that first, especially two years, we'll never have that pace again. Um, so making sure that our brain has the, the things that are on that list of things that are, uh, the terms I would usually say are brain essential nutrients, making sure that our diet has provided enough of those is critical during that yeah. early yeah. child. I, um, uh, I'm very big on both of these. I've actually gone, I've done blood work. I've tested what my EPA, DHA levels are. I'm really trying, Greg, to get the world onto this. I really believe that we can all benefit from it, especially the uh, the people that I work with from neuroathletics, which are mainly NFL players looking at um, uh mild traumatic brain injury, even when they get concussed, really looking from a molecular perspective, what's happening when they're taking one blow to their head, what's actually happening within a 24-hour cycle. And I actually posted about this recently on Instagram, a study that was produced in The Lancet that was published July this year. It came out to... uh, They came out with a study that showed the first 24 hours uh, what happens in the brain um, of an NFL player when he takes a blow to the head. And basically they were saying that all glycogen reserves do not go through. Like you, your brain can only survive on um, on fatty acids such as D- EPA, DHA. It doesn't want to get its primary source of fuel from glucose, which opens up this whole other um, controversial theory around the ketogenic diet and something that I'm trying to put out there to the world. And, and you can obviously um, weigh in on this too, is what is a ketogenic diet? Why is it uh, beneficial and how does it differ? Because I got a lot of questions on this post around, oh, but Louisa, if you're saying that um, a high-fat diet uh, exasperates the neuronal insult, meaning that um, you know it's, it, it increases your chance of getting an injury and having a a larger traumatic brain injury than why are you promoting a ketogenic diet? So I think it's really essential to tell people the difference between uh, good fats and um, glucose and, and, and the bad fats. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. The um, 
like back when I was more in practice in the nineties and the early two thousands, the Atkins diet would have been, you know, it's like around yeah. that time. But we'd now think of that as really dirty keto, right? It was a high fat, mm-hmm. low carb diet, but you know, I had patients that had seen Atkins or had been on the diet and came in and, you know, eating pork rinds and you know other things that would not like, they wouldn't meet the food quality criteria, mm. although, you know, they were, you know, low carb, right? Because that mm. was the main algorithm that people were using. So I think now, at least within the biohacker community, the, the quality of fats is, you know, um, definitely something that people focus on. So, um, you know, and then ketones, even if we're, you know, following a more ketogenic diet, the brain still requires a certain amount of glucose to run efficiently. So even doing a, like a, a diet that's low in carbohydrates, our liver is still going to pump out some degree of glucose because our brain needs it. It's just mm. essential fuel. And then when I think of, and I would think of you as much more of an expert given your background on traumatic brain injury than I am. But one of the things that I know just in research I've looked at is that during that, our brain needs a lot more energy, like mm. chemical energy, ATP. Um, so I've seen some animal studies where niacinamide, as an example, which helps our uh, mitochondria make ATP, can make a, a big difference in some of the preclinical studies on it following some type of a traumatic brain injury. But I think the idea to me is like we want our mitochondrial network because within a single cell, we could have a, a couple thousand mitochondria, right? So they're this network of powerhouses within cells that are specialists at making ATP chemical energy. And, you know, my goal personally is that my, the network in all of my cells is way more capable in advance of when I need them to make a big increase in energy. And so one of the ways that we create, whether it's our, the quality of mind and nootropic, um, what's quality of life, which is more specifically mitochondrial, but all of our products have some ingredients in them that are designed to support mitochondria. Because ultimately, the health of cells often boils down to having enough energy to do the work they need to. And when they're stressed by whatever the insult is, they need more capability. I think that's true for everything, even for even though you're not taking a blow to the head, but you mentioned a bit, and we can go into this. Some of the patients that come to you may say, you know what, I'm just a, uh, I'm not doing any extreme sports, but I've got a wife, I've got three kids and I'm, you know, I'm working 14 hours a day and I find that my, uh, my focus and my, my attention is just all off. So they can just come to you for a, a myriad of different things. It doesn't have to be so harsh, like, you know, clinical depression, for example. Well, and I just want to clarify, I'm not in practice currently. I work full-time at NeuroHacker, but I, when I was in practice, so that's, this is dating back quite a while now, but I worked in the New York City area. I was um, in Connecticut, just over the border. So I would have... Um, lots of New Yorkers, you know, super high performing professionals that in, you know, often had pretty severe health challenges, but in a general sense, what, um, what I would say, I think it's back to this idea of that cognitive pyramid. I mentioned, we had talked about the base was being, you know, alert, vigilant, and that attention was above that. And then above that, I think of his executive functions, which really the, the, big trio there is working memory, which is your ability to hold things in your head while using them. Uh, Another one would be cognitive flexibility, which is the Mm -hmm. idea of being able to change your mind or, you know, really embrace someone else's perspective. And another would be inhibition, which is the idea of, we all know there's things that we shouldn't do, but yet we do them. Mm -hmm. Um, Inhibition is what lets us not do those things. So, yeah. So that would be a collection of some of the skills with an executive function and then I'm a big fan of what social cognition and the, the trio there would be being able to be aware of our own emotional responses to things. So, you know, what's going on inside our body. Mm-hmm. Um, another one or another skill in that would be being able to read body language. So pick up on social cues. And then the third is more what I would think of as empathy, 
like your ability to, I think they call it theory of mind technically, but it's your ability to essentially put yourself in someone else's shoes and imagine what they might be thinking and feeling. So what I saw clinically and what I've seen in the time period since and what I see routinely at Neurohacker with my friends, people I care about, et cetera, is that those social cognition and executive functions are far higher up on the pyramid. And when energy is in short supply or we've been, you know, you know, used it all up because we've had just a, a really busy day or maybe even just a normal day for us. Um, or if stress is really high, it's those cognitive skills that seem like they're the first ones that go. Like mm-hmm. we literally seem like we don't have enough energy to put the effort into those things because they require more um, mitochondrial energy. Wow. It's, that is so interesting, especially when you talk about um, the limitations of our brain from a mitochondrial perspective. Right now, just to like, um, just to sidetrack for a moment, I am working on cold shock proteins and, and I'm doing a lot of research here in Sydney um, in conjunction with the University of Sydney. And what we're doing is we're looking at how cold thermogenesis can strengthen the mitochondria. So that's something that I, I really love. And then also how it does it, um, how does it create neurogenesis, for example, and enhance neurogenesis. So anything from a mitochondrial perspective is so important to touch on. And it's something that we really just tread over. We don't really think about that. We just really just take a helicopter view and think, well, lack of focus, lack of attention. I'm just going to pop this in. That's what it says it's good for. We don't really know the mechanisms of action. So thank you for providing that for us. So we've spoken a lot about nootropics. Now, uh, what why would somebody come to the Neurohacker Collective? What is it and what are you tr- what are you aiming at doing with the products that you create? So I would say the um, today we don't have many products. We're we're really uh, methodical in developing a product because we want to make sure that anything we release, we feel confident that it's going to make a difference in people that invest in taking it. But we um, we generally have focused on things that that would have a common theme of either cognition or energy. So, like our our three quality of mind and um, its um, skinny down version, quality of focus, was were our first products. So those would be um, for sh- sure like intended as a nootropic. Our next product is called Qualia Life, which is more designed. Um, mitochondria would be a huge part of it, but essentially for a lot of the, the processes that cells use to convert sugars and fats into energy, the idea being if we can make that more efficient, can toughen up the mitochondrial networks, then good things tend to happen all through our body because one of the common unifying themes of lots of um, challenges with health is that something's not able to get to the work that it needs to do. And then our most recent product we call Night, and it would be in at least in the states in the sleep category. But really, when I designed that, the intent was okay. We've got, for lack of a better way to describe it, we have beginning of the day function, and so you know mechanistically we know cortisol, a stress hormone, surges. Then mm-hmm. we know melatonin, which is a darkness hormone, should be you know coming down to its lowest level. We need no you know, markers like body temperature starting to rise. And so we have all these things that are shifting gears, essentially allowing us to accelerate into our morning. Mm -hmm. And so we want that. And nootropics are often designed to to work with that and amplify it. But then the flip side of that coin is the early evening. And that's when naturally a lot of things should start to be breaking. So some of the, the neurotransmitters that are most important to give us that acceleration into the day, they'd be winding down. And then melatonin, GABA, those would start to be accelerating, like ramping up. And then GABA especially acts somewhat as the braking system for the, the brain. So the, the night product was designed really to be taken early in the evening to essentially allow you to start to slowly break into that evening. Um, one of the side effects of that then would be better quality of sleep. But the way I tend to think of it is this is a nootropic that's the Tai Chi approach. So instead of working on it from the morning, this is a way to indirectly work on the next day, the evening before. 
Okay. So I, I've just opened up the ingredients list of Qualia Mind. Absolutely love it because you've included in there something that I'm um, fascinated with right now. And that's the, um, that's the whole mushroom family. So I'm doing a lot of, I've just gotten into reishi. So you've got reishi mushroom in the, um, in the night formula. I'm doing a lot of lion's mane and reishi at night. I'm uh, doing it in liquid form. That's, I want to touch on the mushroom family, but then I also want to ask why you haven't included GABA in this night formula and your take on, um, on melatonin. I'm a, uh, I, I do like melatonin. Um, sometimes when I, I take it, not, not too often, I take, don't take it every single night, but I take it depending on what my work day's like and then what my day's going to be like the following day. And I generally find that if I, I was supplementing with nine milligrams, but then I found that I was having these wild, wild dreams and I don't know why. So I upped it to, I added another nine. So that brings us up to 18 milligrams. And I find that I just go into such deep restorative sleep. Like I am, it's just feels magic when I have it, but I, I do have it in conjunction with GABA. So that was a long winded question. So let's first, let me ask you why GABA isn't included in qualia night. So in part, both of those, both GABA and melatonin are things that are better taken near bedtime than okay. a couple hours before. So um, night is intended to be taken more like dinner time, three or so hours before bed. And taking melatonin then is actually, um, I would think of as a poor choice, frankly, in part because melatonin like cortisol has a really crisp rhythm and taking it that much before bedtime, we're going to be disrupting that rhythm instead of having a clear. So my analogy for hormones and neurotransmitters is engineering, we would say signal to noise, right? Like the baseline level of melatonin, which the lowest amount would classically be say seven to nine in the morning. That's your noise. And what allows us to respond well to it is having a big surge at the appropriate time at night. But taking it a couple hours before that, you'd now have a pre-surge, if that makes sense. Like yeah. be, that, that signal would be less crisp. Um, so, like, I'm a fan of melatonin, um, for, like, in some circumstances, but it, it's not a fit in this because of the timing. And okay. GABA tends to be the same. So, what we did instead is we gave precursors to um, melatonin, so tryptophan being what it's made from, and then made sure we included the, um, the nutrients that are used in enzymes that help the body convert tryptophan into melatonin. And okay. for most people, that's going to work just as well. They're going to, like what I would say, it's an on-demand system. So mm. the enzymes that make melatonin are going to try to make more of it at night. And you know, other than the rare subset of people that have a genetic issue with one of those enzymes, the limitation is in uh, having enough tryptophan. So when you say tryptophan is the precursor of melatonin, and this is just the same as N-acetylcysteine is the precursor of glutathione, is this something that we should be looking at rather than taking the melatonin or glutathione? Should we be looking at the precursors? So like one of the, the things that I would say is when Neurohacker makes products, we have to make it considering that a lot of people will be taking it. So we have to make sure that it's designed to be safe for that big group. For something like melatonin, I would be hesitant to just have a, a whole bunch of people take it without, um, I, I know it's super popular selling supplement for sleep in the U.S., but the other thing with melatonin is there's um, basically the amount that our brain would make. So at least in research, what they have concluded is a dose of about 300 micrograms. So way less than what you were taking would oh, be yeah. a physiological dose. That would be the um, max, the amount that our brain makes. And yeah. so when you get into the milligram amounts, you're now like, it's a pharmacological dose. And my at least story about receptors is that, and this goes to that signal to noise analogy that when we take way more, we're going to create a big signal, but receptors then will start to downregulate to protect themselves against that signal. In the same way, if we're in a really loud environment, like eventually our hearing will start to like block out a lot of that noise. 
So I, like my goal is to make the system more sensitive, not give it whopping doses of things to create a temporary high signal. Now, when you're jet lagged, melatonin can be great because you, you do at that point, given like essentially overriding and producing a really big signal can be super useful. So yeah. like it's contextual, but on a day in day out basis, um, especially something taken early in the evening, I'd be really uncomfortable throwing melatonin in. You know, they did a study on elite athletes and the dosing for melatonin, they really wanted to see what dose can these athletes go up. They were putting them on like, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and there was no detrimental side effects. And that was interesting. And then the study actually introduced me to suppositories. And that's something big in the biohacking community right now, suppositories of uh, of uh, melatonin at like 99 milligrams. So I don't know exactly the mechanisms of action there in terms of why it's better taken as a suppository rather than orally. Um, I don't know if you've ever experimented with that or know too much about it. I haven't. It's not something I know about. (laughs) But melatonin does have lots of local effects in the digestive system. It's been used for, um, I've seen studies on it being used for things that would be in the ulcer family, like GERD. Okay. the symptoms. So, um, you know, um, my guess is, you know, we're not absorbing anywhere near that amount in terms of it making it all the way to the brain. Mm. But, um, but melatonin, I know when I was in practice, I used to routinely use um, a hundred microgram dose instead of like, at the time I could get a hundred micrograms, one, three and five milligrams. I think um, in their late nineties, early two thousands. That was all that I could get at least from the the companies I was getting from. And a big subset of the patients I saw did better on the lower dose of melatonin. So they could tolerate the higher dose, but they didn't necessarily need it. So, and with athletes, the same, like if the system's, you know, driving really hard, they would be able to, in my mind, accommodate something that would be too stressful for Mm -hmm. someone else. So anyways, with, with hormones, I'm not a more is better person with a lot of, um, actual like compounds. I'm not more is better. I think it's, um, like tryptophan would be an example. Mm. Tryptophan in uh, a healthy diet, we would get somewhere between typically about 700 to, um, a thousand milligrams. So, you know, in terms of an amino acid, it's one of the ones that we don't get a lot of in our diet. So we don't need a lot of tryptophan to, you know, essentially fill the tank where yeah. something like tyrosine, a diet could have closer to 20 grams of. So, you know, a, a couple hundred milligrams of tyrosine is not going to move the needle as much. Yeah. So let's, um, let's talk about the mushroom family, as I like to call it. Um, it's getting a lot of, uh, well, I, I I've been in Australia the last three months, three four months now, due to COVID, and I've seen that there's a great company over um, in Byron Bay who are doing mushroom extract, like um, like the reishi and like the lion's mane, and it's getting a lot of publicity right now. And I'm seeing a lot of people really want to know a bit more about it. I think I think there's a misconception. I put it up on social, and people immediately thought that I was talking about psilocybin, the magic mushrooms. I'm like, no, this mm-hmm. is not what I'm having. <laughs> and I had a lot of questions about that. I said, no, that's not what I'm microdosing with. I'm actually having lion's mane. So can you go into um, what these are and how they're beneficial for us? Sure. Is the, the company in Barn Bay the one that puts the, I think it's an Australian plum in with their lion's mane? Um, or is that uh, a different company? Uh, life cycle? I don't know if that, yes, yes. The kaku, is it kakadu plum or something? Yes. Yes, correct. Yes. So um, I start, I began a relationship with them about two months ago and they sent me a lot of their products. I was like, you know what? I don't really take it. I've only taken lion's mane in powder form and this was in New York. I hadn't had it this way in liquid form, but now I am, it really does, um, it, it really does have an effect at night. Well, the mushrooms, yeah. I mean, different mushrooms have different applications, but in general, the um, mushrooms would be one of the main um, things that we could have that have beta-glucans. Oats have um, a type of beta-glucan, but it's not the same. 
um, yeast extracts have beta glucans and those are super good for what's called trained immunity, which is, um, so we have two parts of our immune system, which one is like what I think of as the fast thinker from Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. It's the immune response. That's really, really quick. And then we've got a slower, more computational immune system, the adaptive immune system that takes you know days to weeks to figure things out. But beta glucan acts to essentially make that fast acting immune system fitter. Like literally the, the macrophages get bigger and faster when they're challenged with that. So um, there's compounds within these, you know, medicinal mushrooms that are really great for toughening up our immune system. So lots of research, especially out of Japan and China on these different mushrooms, especially like reishi being a classic one for immunity, but then reishi in terms of its history, the translation of the, in Chinese medicine, I think reishi is called lingzi, but again, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it translates as mushroom of immortality. So it would have been thought of as an wow. adaptogen, but something that was taken that would promote many of the qualities we want at night, that calm, relaxed, you know, better sleep. So those were all things that reputationally um, reishi had. Where lion's mane is really different. Lion's mane at least mechanistically, is one of the things that's been shown to boost BDNF, which is um, brain-derived nootropic factor, something that essentially is involved with neural repair and um, neurogenesis, so like brain plasticity. Mm-hmm. So uh, especially um, BDNF seems to be something that in people that have challenges with mood of different, mm-hmm. different types – BDNF often isn't as high as it is in people that aren't challenged with mood issues. So it has a kind of a different, you know, different effect and has been, you know, I would say the core mushroom used in the the biohacking nootropic community. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even like the neuroprotective benefits that it has against dementia, Alzheimer's disease, um, I think is getting studied more. I would actually love to see a lot of these studies being performed from a neuroimaging perspective. Um, like I told you, like when we were, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, when we we're just getting to know each other, I said to you that I work a lot with neuroimaging, whether it's fMRI, EEG, and I mean, I don't know if you could, you know, if nootropics could be seen from this level, but I would be really interested to see a brain pre, you know, uh, pre-qualia mind and then four or five months after the protocol of any nootropics to tell you the, to tell you the truth yeah. and then rescan the brain. I don't know if there's any research out there that you know about, but that's what I'm interested in. I saw, not with, with QEEG is the only thing I've okay. seen. Oh, what did you find? I, I use that too. Um, so it was, I think it was nine people and it was, they looked five days and 30 days. And, um, Dan Stickler, who's, um, yes, he's, he's got a, a YouTube. It was before right now he's our um, chief medical officer, but he really, he, we just use him. Um, like he, he's more someone that's, um, consults with us that we, um, but he has, has a full time to um, clinical practices. So he's a super busy guy, but before, um, he became CMO for us. Basically, he's very into anti-aging, um, you know, nootropics. He did a, a course on nootropics online at one point. And he had patients that were coming in and more reliably than any other nootropic that he'd encountered, they were saying they were getting good responses from qualia at the time. And so he put a handful of his patients on it and then did before and after. So, um, and made a YouTube video of it. Oh, that's amazing. We're definitely going to have to look that up. Um, any lasting comments while we wrap up the podcast in relation to anybody who's out there right now, who's kind of thinking, you know, they've read a lot about new topics, they're getting into it. They're finding that their focus, even their anxiety levels may be high right now. What's your, what's your advice on that standpoint? So, I mean, I personally think like in, um, when things are more challenging, like mentally, emotionally, you know, because of things going on in the world around us, our brain needs more support than normal. Not like what was, what was enough for us before is probably not enough now. So I know I, I shared a couple studies with you 
um, in advance of this, but one was um, the idea was essentially that people that had poor working memory had more difficulty following through on social distancing. And the idea is working memory, again, we, we touched on, but it's what we can hold in our memory as we're doing something. And the idea was that for, to be able to make good decisions with social distancing, you had to be able to weigh out the message, the risk, the reward, while figuring out how far you were away from someone and all that was tapping into your working memory. So mm -hmm. people with more working memory capacity just could do that more effortlessly. Um, another study I believe I shared with you was one that had to do with empathy um, and kind of the gist of it was they put people through a, a cognitive test that was designed to measure empathy and some subset of them were excellent at it. They just had a lot of skill there. But for a large percent, they weren't very good at it. And the most common reason that they gave for it was that they felt like it was just too much effort to be good at it. Mm -hmm. And again, we know when effort is in the picture or like the literal verbiage that someone's giving, that their brain is also struggling um, mm -hmm. because our brain only has so much capacity to put out effort. So one of the, one of the things I think of as um, a specialty, especially of quality of mind, is essentially giving us more capacity to put mental effort into things. And I just think when we're, you know, if we're already struggling with things socially, you know, our work, then that's a clue that we could use the ability to put more mental effort into things. That is absolutely brilliant. And for everybody listening, if you head over to Qualia, uh, if you head over to Neurohacker and look at their Qualia Mine and Research and want to actually purchase a product, you can use Diamond 15 and you'll get a 15% discount. But what we're going to do, Greg, is we're going to link all of this in the show notes. And is that where we can find you? Do you have anything, any personal social media pages or should we just head on over to Neurohacker Collective? I think I'm from the wrong generation. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I have them, but it's more to like interact with my nephews and nieces. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just right for um, Neurohacker's blog. So that's the best place to find me would be neurohacker.com. Amazing. Thanks so much for providing all this content for us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on and um, continue doing great work.